Well, uh, which of these two is authentic Christianity? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Or deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The answer, of course, is both, isn't it? You'll recognise the second one uh, from our reading just now. It's verse uh, 34 of Mark chapter 8. Do keep your Bibles open on page uh, 1012 to follow along. Uh, The first one, as you'll see, is uh, from Mark chapter 5. You may remember that. As Jesus speaks tenderly to a desperate, outcast woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, They both come from Jesus' lips within the space of just a few pages of Mark's gospel. And yet one is so much easier to hear and believe. We want that tender embrace. We want that end to our suffering. So much so that it colours what passes for popular Christianity so often. Around the world and up and down uh, this country... Uh, There are preachers who will promise much on Jesus' behalf, but they will only give voice to half his message. Many of us may have been exposed to the more obvious promises of blessing and riches for following Jesus, the stuff of sort of a thousand podcasts or books or YouTube channels. Many more of us might have been brought up with maybe the kind of softer version of that, not sort of big houses and big cars in exchange for big gifts, but at least a comfortable, easy, respectable life. But if that is what we have been told, if that is what we are expecting, we have been sold a lie. We will end up bitter and disappointed if that's what we think. Because the reality is in many ways far from that. We are not promised a comfortable life, but we are promised life with Jesus. Crumbs under the table for dogs turn out to be a feast with a king, as we've seen. That's why what Jesus says in this passage today is so important for our lives, for the way that we walk with him. If following Jesus has ever sort of affected how people think about you, then, and you've kind of thought, oh, this isn't what I signed up for when I started following Jesus, then what Jesus says tonight is for you. Jesus is honest with us so that we get our expectations right. Managing expectations in life is pretty important, isn't it? I find often that the biggest disappointment in my life Um, are when the expectation and the reality are miles apart. Uh, Will talked about the expectation of his present uh, from Becca last week, which turned out to be a kite. Uh, For me, I've got my own story of uh, that sort of uh, deep disappointment. Uh, It was a a weekend uh, not long after Emily and I were married. We'd uh, booked a hotel uh, in the city with a nice pool, but we didn't book breakfast because we thought, oh, we could go for a trendy brunch somewhere uh, nearby. Uh, But it was a Sunday morning on the fringes of the city of London, and I don't know whether we just sort of walked in the wrong direction, uh, but everything was closed. No trendy brunches, no brunches at all. We walked for 45 minutes, uh, sort of aimlessly around, 
uh, and we did not find breakfast. And I was hungry, but I was also bitterly uh, disappointed. It wasn't that I thought the brunch was going to sort of be the best thing ever, but I thought it would be nice. (laughs) The mismatch between my expectations and the reality was huge. And so the disappointment was massive. So let's let Jesus set our expectations for what following him is going to be like. Okay, here's the first thing that Jesus tells us from verses 31 to 33 that will set our expectations so you're not disappointed like I was. Here it is. The Messiah's true path is suffering and then glory. The Messiah's true path is suffering and then glory. If you were with us uh, last week, we looked at verses 27 uh, to 30, immediately before our reading uh, tonight with Will. You may recall that extraordinary moment when all the hopes and expectations of thousands of years met. They come spilling out as a man looked at his friend and said, you are the Messiah, you are the king that God has sent. Many of us may have sort of got used to that idea that Jesus is the Messiah, but try to think of the sort of the thrill, the excitement of what is going on at that moment. This is sort of five-year-old, I can't wait for it to be Christmas levels, and then ratchet it up quite a lot. This isn't an everyday event that's happened just before we've uh, read uh, what we've read tonight. And then Jesus, at the end of last week's reading, said, verse 30, look down at that, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Blank faces, dropped jaws. This is the biggest news in thousands of uh, years, Jesus. And you don't want us to tell anyone about it. And it gets worse. Look at verse 31. He, that's Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus is speaking about himself using uh, that term, the Son of Man, and he says, I must, it is necessary for me to suffer many things and be rejected, and I must be killed. Only then will I rise again. If the shock of verse 30 was big, then verse 31 is huge. Jesus says he must die. And to cap it off, the very people who should be sort of welcoming Jesus in as the Messiah, that's the elders, the chief priests and the teacher of the law, they are going to be the ones that are going to do it. Sure, there had been tension with uh, Jesus, but surely now that the disciples know that Jesus is the Messiah, then he will reveal it to everyone else and everyone will fall into line. Well, with that picture in mind, I think we're probably with Peter in verse 32, if you look at that. He says, sorry, Jesus, I think I must have heard you uh, wrong. Did you say the Jerusalem bigwigs are going to be the ones to kill you? Why don't we just go down there and we can surely sort it out by uh, talking? But verse 33, Jesus says, no, 
I have not got it wrong. You have, Peter. It's shocking. Peter doesn't get it because he's still only half seeing the truth. Like the blind man who is healed in two stages in the miracle back in uh, verses 22 to 26. But Jesus sees clearly. He sees his disciples. And he knows he has to keep to his path. And so he calls Peter Satan. No longer the rock, but a stumbling block, trying to trip him up as he walks his true path of suffering and then glory. Jesus knows he must, verse 31, suffer many things and be rejected. And he must, verse 31 again, be killed. His path is one of suffering and then glory. And it is so important that it works like that, that he even calls his friend Peter Satan. Jesus had faced down the devil in his temptation at the beginning of his ministry. Now he does it again. It must happen like this, because this is God's way. Peter and the other uh, disciples could have sort of expected that this was the path for Jesus, based on reading their scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, The biggest Old Testament picture of the Messiah is King David. Yes, he is gloriously victorious, but you only have to read a few of the Psalms that he wrote to know that he suffered greatly for being God's chosen one. But verse 33, the disciples have human concerns in mind, not God's. They had no room for a suffering Messiah in their worldview. And so the first thing for us to think about is that, do we have room for a suffering Messiah, a suffering king? Perhaps in some ways it's not as hard for us to think of that as it was for Peter. For most of us here, what kind of king Jesus is, isn't a matter of life and death. People around us don't sort of pour scorn on Jesus for dying on a cross. They merely think that it means that he is irrelevant to their lives. But for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing real persecution, the threat and the reality of dying for Jesus, like those we prayed for in uh, Mozambique, Uh, earlier in our time together, or in Algeria that we prayed for uh, this morning, it really does matter for them. And so as their brothers and sisters, it must matter to us too. Because surely in their situation, it'd be much easier to follow a king who is only the warrior, only the victorious one. They could fight back if that were the case. But that is not the real Jesus of the scriptures. His path was one of suffering now and glory later. He is the one who suffered and died. For the sake of our brothers and sisters and of future generations who may suffer that way in this country, we must hold on to the real Jesus as revealed in the Gospels and the wider scriptures. 
And of course, we need to do that not only for the sake of others, but for ourselves too. For of course, Jesus' path is the path that we must follow too. That's our second point. Uh, The disciples' true path follows the Messiah. The disciples' true path follows the Messiah. That's the rest of our passage. Uh, Those of you who uh, come to Roots will know that I recently spent a few days on my own in the countryside. And you'll know that I did not cover myself in glory in the eyes of anyone who grew up in the countryside, uh, very much including our rector, Charlie. Uh, Aside from wondering why there aren't aren't, uh, more streetlights in quiet, uh, dark villages, I also found myself wondering why there aren't signposts on country footpaths. So I was out for a walk. It was going reasonably well. I can, I can read a map, sort of, um, and I was having a good time. But I came to a point where I simply could not work out where the path was. Uh, I could see it on the map that it crossed a field and then it split in two halfway across the field. And I could see with my eyes in front of me that there was a sort of a clearly discernible path that had been trodden down. It was a regional uh, walking route, but that was not the one that I wanted. I looked in the middle of the field, and I could not work out where the path split. I had been following the footsteps of others up to that point, but I was utterly lost when called to go a different way from the crowd. Which is good news, isn't it? that Jesus only calls us to follow the path that he has taken. We walk the path that he has trodden down for us. Look again at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus says a rather obvious thing in, those, in that verse. He says, followers, follow. The actual words that he uses are, whoever wants to follow after me must follow me. Jesus says, followers, follow. It's not actually that difficult to understand, is it? The definition of a follower is someone who follows. The tricky part is the bit in the middle, isn't it? They must deny themselves and take up their cross. Both of those phrases, deny themselves and take up their cross, have been devalued, I think. Deny myself has sort of come to mean, oh, I won't have cream on my hot chocolate. And people say things like, oh, that's just my cross to bear, when they're talking about something that is mildly inconvenient. There is no way that Peter and the other disciples could possibly have thought like that. Carrying your cross in the Roman world meant that you were a condemned person on the way to a brutal execution. If you saw someone leaving your village carrying a cross, they were under Roman guard and they were not coming back. And you would do well to have nothing to do with them lest you join them soon. In fact, there was really very little you could do for them, except perhaps ease their pain as they hung there. Jesus is saying 
in very graphic terms in verse 34, if you want to follow me, you must give up on your own path and you must join me on mine. A path which, verse 31, is suffering and death and only then glory. Why would we do that? Well, to do an extraordinary thing like that, we need to have an extraordinary reason. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us in verses 35 to 38. It's a sort of series of binary choices, either or. Verse 35, you want to save your life? Well, you can't. You'll lose it that way. But give it up for Jesus... Well, then you do get to keep it. Or verse 36, you can gain the whole world, but you can't have your soul or your life. It's the same word at the same time. Verse 38, you can be ashamed of Jesus and his words now, but then Jesus will be ashamed of you when he comes to judge the world. Your life, your way now and you lose everything. Or Jesus' way now, and you gain everything. It is suffering with Jesus now, and glory with Jesus later. Or you can have a sort of pale glory now. That, verse 36, is up to and including gaining the whole world, but it is without Jesus. And so it means the loss of everything that is of true value. That is true suffering. The king and judge of all will come in the Father's glory and will say, no, this person was and is my enemy. But did you notice that isn't what Jesus wants for anyone? He thinks that your soul, your life, is worth more than all the world has to offer, verse 36. He thinks it is uniquely valuable in that you cannot put a price on it, verse 37. If you, like so many of us, find it hard to know what you're worth, then read verses 36 and 37 every morning this week, and you will see what Jesus thinks of you. This is a call to suffer now, but it is a call to suffer with a king who thinks this about me. Isn't that a call that is worth listening to? Jesus' overall point in those verses that we've just thought about is that you can't claim to follow him and walk another path. It doesn't make logical sense, does it? A follower follows. They don't walk another way. But more importantly, it doesn't make sort of relational sense. Jesus is a person, and following him means sticking close to him, walking close to him, walking on his path, just as you would with a friend when you're walking with them in the countryside. The disciples' true path follows the Messiah. Where does this sort of bite 
for us? Where does taking up our cross turn from sort of mild inconvenience to being a condemned man walking? Well, let me suggest a few places. Have a look at verse 38 again. Let me read that. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Jesus specifically highlights being ashamed of him and his words. Now, there's an obvious uh, application to the current crisis in the Church of England. Uh, Jesus, in keeping with the rest of Scripture, says one thing. Uh, Some in the Church of England say, no, we don't like that. We are ashamed of that. And so we're going to change what the church has always taught. I'm not going to talk more about that now. Do listen to uh, Charlie's sermons uh, that he's preaching at the, uh, at the moment in the morning services on John's letter, uh, particularly the one uh, last week about redefining uh, sin and repentance. That's one area. But let's think instead of a scenario uh, that may happen uh, to you in the next few weeks at school, Uh, with your friends at work, visiting families, whoever it is. Someone says, it's nice that you, Phil, have uh, traditions at Christmas and you do all that kind of church stuff uh, because you're a vicar. But that's, that's not really for me. I can see that Christmas is a time to be kind to others, but I don't really get it. Well, what do you say? Well, of course, the exact thing that you're going to say uh, varies depending on who you are and who you're talking to. But something along the lines of, oh, no, that's not what Christmas is really about. The Bible says it is about the God who made everything coming to live with people to sort out the mess we have made of the world. That's who Jesus is. That's what the Bible says Christmas is is all about. That's what it's all about for everyone, not just for me. And when you say that, there are various ways that that conversation could then go. Maybe it's an invitation to a carol service or an offer to read a gospel one-to-one. Or, of course, there might be an awkward pause before the conversation ends pretty swiftly And then the relationship is not far behind. That is a cost that looks like Jesus, as he suffered many things and was rejected and killed. Discipleship is about many areas of life because Jesus' words, verse 38, they cover many things, don't they? And so it will affect our time and our money, our serving and our giving, our relationships and our work. But those things only really point to a bigger cost. Rejection by the world, as it doesn't like the way that we live, because we are denying ourselves and following Jesus. Let me be explicit. That will be painful, Because rejection by the world is actually rejection by real people. Friends, colleagues, family, neighbours, 
potential employers. The world is not some sort of faceless blob. It is actually a series of people, isn't it? With names and phone numbers that don't appear in our messages so often anymore. But the disciples' true path follows the Messiah, and he is going to the cross. That's what 9 verse 1 is all about. It's the topsy-turvy moment when the kingdom of God comes in power as God's king gives himself by laying down his power and his life. He could not lay down his cross at any moment. He could not lay it down when it looked more than mildly inconvenient as he walked that road to Calvary. He took it up and he bore it to the end for us. We too can't just lay down our cross when it starts to get uncomfortable. It's just not how it works. Jesus knew that suffering and rejection was coming for him, verse 31. And he knew that followers follow, verse 34. And so he lovingly tells us the truth about what life as a follower looks like. He sets our expectations so that we are not shocked or disappointed when we find ourselves walking his path of suffering before glory. It is a path that we will wander from, and wonderfully, that is why he took his cross and went all the way so that we can be forgiven when we fall off that path. But it is still a call to follow. And so the question this week is, am I going to follow Jesus by following his path? It is a path of suffering now and glory later. We get a glimpse of that glory in the passage that we're going to read next week. And it's a glory that even now, as uh, we've talked about in the rest of uh, the service, that we enjoy. But this week, let's think about this. Will I live as a condemned man who expects passers-by to want to have nothing to do with me? Will I deny myself and take up my cross and follow the one who thinks that my life is worth taking up his cross for and laying down his life for? Will I follow his path of suffering and only then to glory? I'm going to invite the band back up and in a moment I'll lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus who walked the path even though he knew that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. And we pray that we would, as his disciples, follow his path knowing that he only calls us to go where he has gone before. We pray that for his sake 
and for his glory. Amen.